Welcome to CinemaScope, a new podcast from True Story FM. Hi, I'm Andy Nelson, co-host of the Next Real Film podcast and Movies We Like. As a passionate movie lover, I've always relished exploring the diverse landscape of cinema. And when you look closer at the taxonomy of genres, subgenres, and film movements, you see an intricate web of interconnections and influences. This complex cinematic family tree spans only 125 years. So how did styles as diverse as the French New Wave, New Queer Cinema, and Ozploitation emerge? What cultural, economic, and technological forces sculpted these styles? And what hidden threads unite them all as part of the same fantastic art form? Those questions sent me on a journey to explore each style and trace their impacts, all to better understand the bridges between different styles. And that led me here to CinemaScope. In each episode, I'll be exploring one particular genre, subgenre, or film movement in depth, inviting expert guests to help us all better understand what defines that style, how it came to be, and what branches it, in turn, influenced on this big cinematic family tree. For example, how did German Expressionism shape American film noir? What's the difference between Westerns, Spaghetti Westerns, and Brazilian Nordesterns? We'll examine the economic and socio-political forces that birthed categories like black exploitation, and we'll spotlight visionary films and directors key to the evolution of different styles. So join me as we explore the complex forces that shape film's evolution and appreciate the diverse creativity possible in its relatively brief history. Let Cinemascope be your guide to understanding this art form we cherish how its genres blend, bounce off each other, and advance a rich tapestry of storytelling innovation. Together, we'll gain a deeper appreciation for this wondrous, shape-shifting medium. Our journey begins soon. Be part of this adventure by subscribing to CinemaScope today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Anna in the King is over. Etc. 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 Your Majesty will forgive me. It's a matter of great importance. It's Lady Topton, Your Majesty. Is there nothing dishonorable to me? that is secret here. How shall you like if I make you watch what I shall do? Was that as suitably like uh, blackface racist as the film was? <laughs> <laughs> you know, okay, this is going to okay, be an just... interesting one to talk about because definitely this film is wearing its age. And I don't know, I don't know, I don't know if that ever went away with any of the iterations of the no. story. I don't know that it did. <laughs> All the way up until 1999 when 
Andy Tennant decided to make his own version. Yeah, I mean, that's the uh, of all of the things that hit me about this movie. That's the one that sticks out as sort of a sore thumb, because I do. I, I have to say, I enjoy my time with this movie. I've always loved this story and I've learned a lot about kind of the the genesis of it. I'd never seen this. A version of it. And, uh, you know, I'm a big fan of The King and I and Yul Brenner's, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, is, you know, chef's kiss for the ages. And that colored my entire interpretation of Siam and Thailand that they probably sing in sort of Victorian English all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I saw it just young enough that, man, it broke me for what what Thailand actually is. Uh, very different. But uh, I do really love the story. It's a sweet kind of romantic story. And um, and so it's interesting to watch it and have that same feeling, uh, that same like sharks versus jets feeling of they just they just didn't know how to do stuff. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, are you saying the king and I didn't? No, I'm saying they didn't. They absolutely didn't. Yul Brenner wasn't wearing a fake tan. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying when I say they, it's the royal they all the way, as you say, through 2000 or 1999, whenever they, like nobody is, has had figured out how to approach this kind of content in a culturally sensitive way. And we learn stuff, right? Like over the years, we learn stuff. So as much as uh, like I, I feel like I'm softening my my perspective on some of these antique uh, views on filmmaking. And, um, you know, so that part of it does not hold up. and. Uh, but I can still celebrate it for what is a lovely, uh, ultimately to me, a lovely film with some interesting stuff going on. Once you can get past the the way that filmmaking was made at this point, I mean, even to the point, I mean, I, I don't think any version of this story that has been uh, filmed, and I imagine stage versions as well, has ever really handled the casting and I mean, really kind of just even telling the story in a way that uh, is a little less problematic. But and, and then even in the 1999 version, it's like Chow Yun-Fat is not Thai, you know. Uh, and again, it's OK that they at least cast an Asian actor. But at the same time, they were kind of doing some some cultural uh, washing as well, just saying, you know what? He's Asian. He's good enough. And exactly. so it's yeah, it's like, like considering never... bases covered, right? Like, yeah, you know, Jodie Foster's not British. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. It's I mean, it, it's an interesting thing that they've always kind of struggled with to the point where, I mean, this film has largely or this story from the beginning when the book was first written by Margaret Landon. Uh, adapting uh, Anna Leon Owen's own account of her time living in, at the time, Siam, now Thailand. Uh, you know, ever since the book has come out, the the uh, the people of uh, Thailand have generally disregarded it as uh, a story that's, you know, full of, um, you know, all sorts of um, portraying the society incorrectly, and, you know, not necessarily being respectful of the king, of the country, of its people. And uh, to the point where, I mean, you know, several Thai intellectuals in 1948, after all of this came out, they actually wrote a book called The King of Siam Speaks that kind of talked a little bit about it. And, uh, you know, I, I think that largely the story was, uh, you know, dismissed over there. But 
for a lot of the rest of the world, it has still been a very popular story. And I, I guess, you know, in the scope of this type of story, especially coming out at the time that it did, I mean, what is it about the story that draws people to it so much? Is it the sense of kind of like the world history and, and like we get this journey of, a you know, you know Anna Leon Owens as she's kind of exploring this part of the world and learning a little bit about herself along the way? Well, sure. And the, the romance of the, the crusty old character who softens as a result of the relationship. And, and right, that is, those are some, I don't know, romantic cultural tropes that I think we're sort of from, to a Western eye, wired to, to, to find some affinity for. I mean, this is the stuff that romantic movies are made of. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I think that's probably it. But, you know, to those critics' eyes, the Thai critics, the Sci- Siamese critics of the time, yeah, this was not made for them. This was made for the West, right? This was made for then British audiences, right? Like in the book in 1870. And and uh, the original book books, I should say, I'm really curious about the English governess at the Siamese court and Romance of the Harem. Those were Leon Owen's actual memoirs. Where where are those? Like, I can't I can't find them. <laughs> I can't find the audiobooks of those original uh, <laughs> publications. I tried. And I'm really curious how things are portrayed from the woman who experienced it. Was she authentic or how thick was her, you know, Victorian lens when she viewed the King of Siam and the, and the temple, right? The palace. It's in, in some ways like it's it's something we're still we're still dealing with. I mean, we just had Midsommar, which was the same story, but with more bears and burning huts. Like, the who are we to judge? Like, who judges culture, right? The one with the pen is judging culture. And in this case, it's Margaret Landon and it's Anna Leon Owens. And they are judges of culture without the participation of, of the other side of the culture itself. And I think that's the that's the constraint uh, of, of this movie. That's the like the thing you have to get over to enjoy the hardwired kind of romantic stuff. Is that a fair assessment? I, I think so. And I, I think that, uh, I mean, it's just, it's interesting because there's definitely this type of story about a a person going to another culture. And I mean, you know, to a certain extent, this is really going to also fall into the same trappings that any story like Dances with Wolves or Avatar or any Absolutely. of those um, are a part of where you have the white savior character who's coming in and helping these poor people, you know, these, in this particular case, these, you know, barbarians who live in Thailand, you know, the film's words, not mine, by the way. Uh, but so they can, you know, learn how to be appropriate and act like the British do and all of that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that's a big element of this type of story. There is always going to be in stories like this, you know, even going to something like Driving Miss Daisy, where there is the personal story. And in this case, we have it's a little bit bigger because he's the king. He's ruling a country and he's trying to better his people and his family and everything like that. But you still have the personal story of these two characters trying to figure out how to get along and in the process of like bumping heads a number of times, finally learning to work together and help each other out. Uh, but then you also have the bigger picture, which, you know, is probably more what we're talking about at this particular point, which is really about kind of the the culture and how, as an audience, we're watching a film like this and we're seeing uh, this particular kind of story of colonialism. Isn't it great that the British could come in and <laughs> fix these people? 
And you know, I feel <laughs> like that's exactly it. Right. Yeah. But and you know what? Why do I have I so I, I feel like I should have exactly the same problem with this movie that I do with Gone with the Wind. And yet Gone with the Wind makes me mad. This movie doesn't make <laughs> me mad. And I think it's explicitly because Gone with the Wind is my culture. That's my history. And the, uh, and and so there's like an arm's length distance that I have to keep reminding myself is this is doing a Gone with the Wind to other people. And you, Pete, should probably feel strongly about that, too. And and so I, I don't know. I mean, are you hit with any of that? I mean, I, I am a little bit. And I guess, you know, in the scope of I, I guess I'm not running into quite the gone with the windness of this one. I it, it definitely feels a little bit more, you know, I don't know. I guess I'm not even sure driving Miss Daisy is the right reference point. But I mean, you know, maybe something like I mean, it's hard to say because it, like even Dances with Wolves is less about him trying to teach them stuff. It's really you know, them trying to teach him things and everybody helping each other out. Uh, You know, this one is really, uh, I mean, she's a teacher. And so it's hard to say, well, she's going in to fix things. It's like, well, that's why they hired her. They brought her here very specifically to be a teacher and to help these kids. And it's like, okay, yeah, I mean, hey, I spent time in South America uh, building latrines and giving immunizations when I was in high school. It's like, it's the sort of thing that, you know, there's a part of you where you just want to, you know, explore the world, learn other cultures and help people out. And I, I I can see both sides of the argument. But at the same time, it's like, I, I don't know, I guess in the scope of a teacher teaching, that's what they do, whether it's to, you know, her teaching a group of kids in a British classroom or an Indian classroom or over here in Thailand. She's doing her job. Exactly right. Exactly right. And I never get the sense that she has learned anything about Siamese culture that changes her in a substantive way beyond what she learns about herself through the relationship with the king, right? Everything she learns about Siamese culture is still filtered through the lens of barbarianism, right? It is foreign. Even when she puts English dresses on the many wives of the king, they don't have underwear. And she's like, she's shocked at at not having anything to wear under those dresses. It's still everything is filtered through shock. What she learns is the stuff that allows her to break her icy, to thaw her icy heart, right? Like she came not not wanting to ever marry or fall in love again. And yet she develops a warmth for the king. And so while the king is is learning so much, right, he, you can really like I get the sense that this is written in a way to demonstrate how inquisitive he is, right? He wants to learn a lot. The common Comedy comes when he interprets things strangely, right? He's a reader, right? <laughs> He's a reader of many things. That I think is is interesting. She is not portrayed that way, in in my opinion. No, I mean he is very curious about the world, and yes, I mean he is in a position of royalty, and so is has certainly. I mean, it's funny because you do learn over the course of the film from his, oh, I'm going to forget what... Um, Lee J. Cobb? <laughs> yeah, what was Lee J. Cobb's position in the government there? He was the prime minister. The prime minister. But you learn from him that at one point, like, he had recruited King Mongkut from a monastery. Like, he had been a monk, and then he came to be the king, apparently, I guess, when his father had died. Uh, it's funny, like, I just I kept laughing every time Monkut was so much like the baby king, like who gets everything he wants and was like so demanding about everything. It just 
I'm like, this person was a monk. I would feel that he probably had learned a few lessons of humility while yeah. a monk <laughs> that he probably didn't forget. And I imagine a lot of that is kind of the interpretation from Leon Owens and then Landon in the novel. Like, doesn't it seem like the, the, the real conflict, the inner conflict in Monkut, the story I wanted to see from him, was exactly that. Like, his own struggle figuring out how to live with humility in the face of the trappings, the cultural trappings of royalty in Siam. Like, he wasn't bred a king. Why was it so easy for him to demand people be on their hands and knees all the time? Right. It's, it's such a, and I guess it's like, I can't, I don't know how, I don't know if they said how long he had been a king by the time we stepped into the story. I don't recall that. Yeah. I, I can't quite remember. Yeah. I don't know. I guess in their culture, like when men turn 20, they are supposed to become a monk for a while. And uh, I'm just reading about Monkut on online right now. It says, the year that he went into the monastery, his father died. Uh, by tradition, he should have been crowned the next king, but they instead chose his older, more influential and experienced brother, who was the son of a concubine rather than a queen. And so he stayed a monk for a while, and then eventually he did end up coming and uh, becoming the king. But yeah, I think that that's—I don't know. I, I would be so— curious about a like i would love to watch a film about his story and his journey like that perspective i think deserves to be told and i think would make for an absolutely fascinating film and uh so somebody out there get to work let me ask you this. Do you have, when you finish watching this movie, with that question in mind, do you have any question as to the impact, like the verifiable impact that her relationship with the king had on Siam, now Thailand, writ large? What the film portrays and what we know about, like, do you feel like you were watching something that is at least rooted in truth? I mean, yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I do get a sense that... Inevitably, with a story like this, especially told at the time it was, you kind of have to walk into this knowing that there are going to be a lot of inaccuracies uh, as far as the the actual history. But, I mean, I knew that she was a teacher. She taught his son. And uh, I do think that it, it, I don't know, I guess I kind of bought into the fact that Chula Longcorn, um, his son, uh, would end up kind of becoming... I don't want to necessarily say a better king, but, you know, having learned from her as a child and also from his father, who, as you said, a very inquisitive person who was passionate about learning, passionate about the world. And I think Chula Longcorn probably got a lot of that from his father, too, and went on to become a, a ruler who um, brought the country forward. So I, I I feel like watching a story like this, I'm seeing it through a very particular perspective, but I also feel like I, I buy it. I, I would love to hear the non-dramatized or like read the transcript of the scene that inspired the scene of Lady Tiang telling uh, Anna that she failed. Uh, that scene in the movie was extraordinary. Like, it was an incredible gut punch to watch her talk about in such a stoic presentation uh, how she failed because, you know, she didn't she didn't teach her son, Chula Longcorn, uh, the would-be king, 
the the softness of the world, like the the same sort of softness and inquisitiveness of the world that allows him to be a benevolent leader. And that that sort of drives that transition into the final sort of sequences and and his first act as governor of and king of of I am. And and I thought that was incredibly powerful, but that doesn't come from nothing. Like I would be that that's the story I would love to see. Like what what was not dramatized about that? Well, what I found frustrating about that, because I mean, Gail Sondergaard, who plays Lady Tiong, I thought did a great job, very kind of reserved performance and worked well in that role. But I I, I wish that the story of the young prince, Chula Longhorn, that there was more meat to it in the story. Like, he has one scene where he asks Anna a question to learn a little bit more, and because she's running off to go do something else, I can't remember where she's going, but she kind of dismisses him and says, you know what, hey, let's talk about this later. She, It's not even a complete out-and-out dismissal. It's like, hey, I, I gotta go do something, let's talk about this later. And then suddenly, we're given... Oh, he's not coming to class anymore. Why is he being so distant? I wonder what's going on. Well, I hope everything's okay. And like, that's what we get. And then she talks to Lady Tiang, who tells her that, uh, you know, she's always going to be uh, remembered as failing her son. <laughs> like, well, eh, I don't know if I was given enough to actually buy into that whole perspective. But, uh, and so that, that to me was the most frustrating part. I thought, Sondergaard did great in the part, but I wish that that element of the story was given a little more uh, meat so that we could have really felt that when she said it, you know? I think so, too. And I couldn't help but think of, you know, movies like, you know, The Last Emperor, right? Like, just movies that show that development of childhood to royalty and the complexities that that come into dealing with transitions of, of power, generational transitions of power, um, more effectively than than this movie did. Because you're right, that entire storyline was in a microwave. <laughs> yes, exactly. It's just, it was so rushed. I mean, it was really interesting, and that's what's frustrating about it. I wanted to see more and like there's even a friendship between anna's young son lewis and uh tula longhorn that i don't know because they had a friendship that was always there i never felt like there was an issue it just it was such a strange thing to go oh wow okay i didn't realize that we were having such a such a relationship breakup here between these characters but yeah so that was interesting well, and yeah, how impactful the death of her son would be on Chula Longhorn. That I mean, that it just happened so fast. So, so, so fast. In the note of historical inaccuracies, apparently that is one of them. Her son does not die at this point. He actually outlived his mother. Yeah, and, and she had two children. <laughs> yeah, <it's, laughs> that's, yeah, That's another one. <laughs> yeah, right, right. We, we skipped over a number of, of key performances, uh, and I feel like we should name drop some of them, like Rex Harrison as the king and Irene Dunn as Anna. You know, given everything that we've talked about and all of the cultural apologies that we make for the film that we need to make, how did these two hit you? I loved the two of them in these roles. And I think, I mean, I, you know, I only just watched The King and I recently, like in the last couple months, uh, for the first time. I had never seen it before. The ever. musical? Yul Brenner? Yeah, I had, I had never seen it before. I know. I did not grow up with it like you. I only just watched it. Wait, Jesus, Andy, what kind of <laughs> hole did you live in in Fort Fun? 
That's crazy. It's, I know. I, it's just one that I knew some of the songs. It's funny as I was watching, I'm like, oh, this is where that song comes from. <laughs> like, I, but for some reason, this one just never ended up uh, crossing my path until I finally watched it. And so, and I enjoyed it, but I didn't love it. I mean, I think Deborah Kerr and, uh, and Yul Brynner were good in the roles, but after watching this, I, I don't know, Rex Harrison. I, I really have a hard time with Rex Harrison and some of, uh, you know, the films in the 60s that he does. But I loved him here. Uh, I mean, all the you know, cultural you know, appropriations aside, everything that he's doing in the role and in kind of the pigeon English and everything, his curiosity and just the way that he played the king and, and going from like being the spoiled little brat king that he is to making these decisions like i just i found him just a joy to watch and paired with irene dunn who we just talked about in our last series in love affair like i just i love the two of them as this pair and they didn't ever have to become like this romantic love you know relationship thing it just the fact that they developed this friendship and this respect for each other and this actual joy to be around each other like i just i really enjoyed them and their relationship yeah, I I think so too and I actually liked all the all the naughty twists and broken promises and the entire first act is her trolling him uh, you know making the kids learn psalms and songs <laughs> so about about broken promises and had the value of a home and a house because that was the first promise he broke was i i promised you a house and you i want you to live in the palace you don't get a house and so that little roundabout like demonstrating the 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 arc of their relationship by way of her using everything that was his against him i thought was really fantastic and talk about breaking down that emotional wall between the two of them i thought it was just really funny uh so I can see, and some of the critique that I've read is is that that inconsistency in his character is put on the performance, and I don't think that's fair. I really think it's written that way. Like, it feels written to be twisted inside of itself and mercurial and inconsistent. Like, that's the idea. I don't think any of that is Rex Harrison's doing. I think he performed what was on the page, and to me, he did it well. I, I like you, I don't love the Pigeon English, but he, I thought that relationship that they developed was really great. I love how he keeps calling her in the middle of the night for things <laughs> like, why can't we send elephants to Lincoln? <laughs> so good. Yeah, he was fantastic. The And the whole idea of putting a piece of paper, putting on a piece of paper the things about which you are particularly brilliant and handing it to your wife or assistant and say, you know, if, if the conversation dolls bring up one of these things, because I really can rock these topics. That's, that's like <laughs> alpha gamesmanship. We should take that away from this movie, you and I. I've been doing that with my wife for years. Here, honey. <laughs> these are the things you can bring up if, if there's a lull in the conversation. I'll Chapter one, it. pickleball. <laughs> okay. Uh. Yeah, so I, I I was really great. Now, we talked about Gail Sondergaard as Lady Tiang. Um, we mentioned Lee J. Cobb as the prime minister. Uh, what did, how did he work for you? Not great, Andy. Uh, that was, that was <laughs> a rough great. one, wasn't it? That's a rough one all up and down the film. And the <laughs> fact that it starts at the pier and a shirtless, voiceless Lee J. Cobb shows up and stands in front of her. Like, there is no way this is going to go right. And and so I think from there, like, again, with today's eyes watching this movie, 
that's where the redemption has to start because that is the low point when he shows up covered in paint and and speaks Thai in his you know whatever the variant of the language was at the time in in his accent with his face does not play i i never adjusted to lee jacob in this movie he always sounds uh like a guy from new york he never for sure yep. <laughs> he never sounds like a person who is from uh from asia at all even even I would have taken just doing it in a British accent, like anything, just so he didn't sound like Lee J. Cobb. Yeah. Like, I was just like, he, this is, you know, he goes from here to the docks working with his brother on the waterfront. Like, it just, it was like way too close in just like that same <laughs> uh, tone. So, but, and I love Lee J. Cobb. Like, he's a yes. fantastic actor who's been in a ton of great stuff, most of which we haven't talked about on the show. I'm just looking through his filmography. I think is the only thing we've talked about that he's done uh, Coogan's Bluff, which is like, I mean, he's not even like, you know, a big part in that. Oh, of course, The Exorcist. And so that's probably the biggest thing that we've talked about with him. But, um, you know, he's just, you know, he's such a great actor. And it's just a shame that that he ended up uh, stuck in this part that just doesn't fit him at all. Yeah, it doesn't play. Not in a way that I think Rex Harrison can fake it enough so that we can get into the movie. Lee J. Cobb can't. He's too Lee J. Cobb. He's too big. Yeah. You know, and, and I think there were some of some of the kids, right? Like Prince Chula Longhorn was Tito Ronaldo. That's when he's older. The, when he's older, right. Uh, yeah. And I think I I I was able to buy him in spite of the the you know the a lot of the kids, I think I should say, a lot of the kids did not you know, they had their accents that did not I think transfer uh, well, but I was able to buy them because they, you know, the kids are blank slates, right? You know, as long as you're going to paint people, kids are easy, easy canvases. <laughs> you, you can make them look the part pretty quick. Uh, and and I think that you know a lot of the same could be said of the wives. There were many, many wives. Um, you know, our our principal uh, wives. We had Lady Tiang, obviously, and Tuptim was a controversial wife. And I I felt like Linda Darnell and Gail Sondergaard uh, were able stand-ins for the movie that we got what did you think about Tup tim's story in this it's done differently in the king and i for sure uh, which is definitely more i feel like well i mean it's a musical so they're not going to like burn someone at the stake in the musical necessarily but i i felt like her character seemed a little more oh i'm just so in love with this man and like uh, like lost and forlorn and what i loved about linda darnell as Tuptim here, which is probably also just this, the way that she's written here, but she really seemed uh, antagonistic. Like she was a great foil for Anna for for that early part of the film. Like she just was so negative about everything. And I loved the scene where she's asking her questions about her conversation with King. She's showing him that amazing jewel in that little case only to use that as a way to find out that Anna is the one who the king was listening to. And she's like, if if the king, if I don't have the king's ear, what good am I? And then she shatters it. Like, I found that to be a really fascinating relationship and watching kind of that journey of Tuptim all the way through uh, finally getting burned at the stake with the man she had formerly been betrothed to who had gone into uh, the monastery himself, but then they burned them because... Uh, they thought that they had gotten back together. It was like, 
I found that more of a satisfying element of the story than and I'm trying to remember how does that end in The King and I? Do you recall? I don't it's not anything like that. It is ambiguous. It's totally ambiguous. You don't know what happens to her, which is in contrast to, and I, I was reading up on this because I couldn't figure out, uh, I, I can't find where I think I read it, that, I mean, she was killed uh, in the real story. She was burned here and beheaded in the 1999 version publicly. Um, but how was she killed in real life? What was the ceremonial killing in, in, in real life? And I can't, I can't find that right now. But um, I did, I, I thought that was really interesting. In the musical, to your point, it is ambiguous and masked in song. <laughs> right. Uh, fittingly, I suppose. Yeah. Why it works better here is because I suppose you could argue it's used as a device to keep King Monkut for the white audiences watching the movie to show he still is trying to learn the lessons that he needs to learn from the good white lady. And he's, he's not quite there yet. You know, to that end, it's, it's rough, but I think there is something more to it in the fact that there is this element in this person who thinks that she is in a position to kind of like tell a leader of a country what to do in the scope of how they deal with uh, the law and the kind of the traditions within the country only to realize like that's a big realization point for her to go, oh, I guess I I don't necessarily I'm not quite the world leader that I am thinking I am at this point. Yeah. Well, and OK, so two points. One, uh, just to clarify, I found it. Tuptim's torture and execution by burning at the stake is disputed by great granddaughter of the king, who also claims to be Tuptim's granddaughter, who says that they never burned people in Siam at that time. That wasn't the kind of thing that they did. But they don't dispute the beheading. So there's a chance. Um, the other thing <laughs> that I think is interesting, to your point specifically, this this movie and part of the the sort of gestalt of this movie is is having characters that are unafraid to speak truth to power. And there are a lot of these iconic characters that that come in and and affect change by way of their relationship behind the scenes, right? I mean, all the way through, you know, what is it, Kevin Spacey's White House thing, right? That's an entire show about people speaking truth to power and the backsides and what kind of things, you know, how how complicated those those relationships can be. And I think those are really interesting. And this movie is sort of a purist take on like what that romantic, you know, relationship can unlock in terms of uh, your ability to reflect for a state leader, hey, you're doing it wrong. Do it better. Yeah. That's an interesting kind of lens to look at this movie through. Yeah. And it also just shows in the scope of being human how hard that is to do sometimes. Like when someone tells you to do something better, there is that sense of pride that you sometimes just can't let go of. And, you know, you just say, no, I'm going to do it my way because this is the right way. Even though in your heart, you're starting to like, feel like you're understanding it, but you just can't step away from that. And that is, I think, an interesting element with uh, Monkut and Rex Harrison's portrayal, because I kind of read that with him, like he is really trying to get past some of these things. But there are times where he just can't let his pride as the king get injured and he he goes forward anyway and making decisions that are i think he acknowledges are probably for the worst but he's doing it anyway for sure for sure yeah yeah what'd you think of the look you know it's interesting 
John Cromwell directed this. I don't think we've talked about anything of his before. You know, he was directing all through the late 20s into the largely into the 50s uh, when, you know, he kind of got caught up in the House of Un-American Activities Committee and pretty much uh, had his directing career kind of shut down. Even though at the time it started, he ended up at RKO. And I think uh, it was about the same time that Howard Hughes bought RKO, who was very (laughs) anti-communist. And they kind of just pushed Cromwell into the corner to direct a bunch of crap that they, you know, didn't want to have to deal with. And so he ended up uh, kind of at the end of his career not doing as much. But my knowledge of him only comes from probably a few of the uh, film noirs that I had seen that he had directed. And um, so I don't have a good sense of Cromwell as a director and what he's bringing to the table. As far as the look for this particular story, the production design is fantastic. The cinematography, uh, Arthur C. Miller was the cinematographer. And I gotta say, like, I didn't think anything special of it. Um, I thought it was fine. I thought it did its job, but nothing stood out to me as, oh, this should win an Oscar for Best Black and White Cinematography, which it did. I don't know. What yeah, did you think uh, of? Yeah. No, I, yeah. I'm right with you. It just <laughs> felt, everything felt staged. Everything felt really staged. There were beautiful sets. It looked, I mean, it looked good, but it didn't, it didn't feel like it was this earth shattering, you know, vision of creativity behind the camera. I didn't walk away transformed. Yeah. Which I felt like, uh, I don't know, I guess I was just really surprised when I was looking at the awards, uh, you know, for the next part of our show. And I was just like, wow, really? Cinematography? Yeah. Huh, okay. <laughs> yep, that's not one I, I would have I said. What, what did it win for, though? One, two, right? Uh, the, one of them was art design, I think. Uh, yeah, it, it won cinematography and then art direction, interior decoration, black and white so which you know definitely makes sense because i mean it it was gorgeous and i think i it's it's one of those things i mean building a set for kind of a palace in another part of the world i suppose you there's an easy element to making it just look cool and beautiful and and so i suppose that they had uh you know an easy job kind of coming up with really interesting sets for it but i i mean i generally enjoyed that part of the film yeah me too me too. I, I mean, I, I enjoyed the music. Yeah. I think some of it was a bit on the nose, but I did love the score. I thought it was lovely. Yeah, this is a, a Bernard Herman score that he did for this that, um, I don't know, as I was listening, I kept humming it afterward. And I'm like, I, I did find it quite captivating. I enjoyed the themes and everything. But at the same time, I'm like, is this this the music of the era that kind of set the stereotyping of the Asian kind of chords that you would get when you would portray like an instant part of the world, like, oh, I heard that chord. Now I know I'm in Asia. Yeah. Like, like some of the chords in this, I'm like, and so I was wondering, I'm like, I wonder if this is where that came from, you know? <laughs> right. They just sort of landed on this. It did well. We might as well just turn out a bunch of Asian sounding scores for anything, <laughs> anything shot on the set that exists on the other side of the world. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Yeah. It is interesting to me, though, just on reflection, right? After watching this movie, I liked the movie, right? I enjoyed my time with the movie. To our question at the very beginning, I don't think we've answered the question, why uh, has it transfixed 
audiences for so many years across so many variations, which we'll talk about, it, you know, in a bit. But um, there are a lot of versions of this in a lot of different flavors. And um, I, I don't understand that necessarily. Well, I mean, do you suppose, I mean, obviously there is a sense of the, uh, you know, just the draw, the connection with somebody. And I, I suppose even though it's not a love story, there is this romantic kind of connection between the two that just feels like, you know, I, I suppose the, I mean, this is maybe why I brought up Driving Miss Daisy earlier in the film. It's not a romantic story, but it is a story of a developing friendship that really becomes something that kind of transcends cultures and everything. Like, I really enjoy the way that that relationship develops between these two people. And also, I suppose there is a little hint that audiences probably love with a story like this of a, a you know, a common person who ends up becoming the ear to royalty and, uh, you know, is somebody who is able to kind of like, you know, affect change within a country. And I suppose there is this interesting draw that people have to a story like that. Like, oh, what would, you know, I would love to be living in the royal palace and the, I get to tell the king what to do and they listen to me. Like, I, I think that there's an element of that that also draws people to kind of the romance of this story. It's it's the story of being thrust into this big world, you know? Yeah, no, I, I get that. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. This is like, there. there's another version of this story of which, like, Watergate's Deep Throat was a big fan. Like, you know, I, <laughs> I got to see all the secrets, and now I'm going to tell them in a parking garage. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, you know, actually, now that you went to uh, the U.S. side of things, but it's like Dave. It's like a common sure. person yep. who suddenly is, oh, wow, I get to play president now. Wow, look what I get to do. Yeah. Yep. Yep. I uh, guess that's yeah. the that's it. Yeah. All right. I got nothing else. You got anything else? Uh, that is it. So we'll be right back. But first, our credits. The Next Reel is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson, music by Hans Johnson, Oriel Novella, and Eli Catlin. Andy usually finds all the stats for the awards and numbers at the-numbers.com, boxofficemojo.com, imdb.com, and wikipedia.org. Find the show at truestory.fm, and if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show. Andy, according to my friend, Internet, this is what Letterboxd is. Letterboxd is a global social network for grassroots film discussion and discovery. Use it as a diary to record and share your opinion about films as you watch them, or just keep track of films you've seen in the past. Showcase your favorites on your profile page. That is a lot. You bet it is. That's why I want you to tell our fair listeners just one thing you do with Letterboxd that has changed the way you watch movies. Let them have it. Okay, are you ready for this? So ready. I love lists. As of today, I have 246 lists in my account. 
I use them to track the movies I watch, organize them in all sorts of different ways. I track them by hand. I clone lists from other people. I use them to plan what I'm going to be watching. All sorts of things. I just, I love creating lists. It's a fantastic tool. Sexiest animated characters. Andy, what is this? We love Letterboxd. And if you're a movie lover, we are sure you will too. And when you upgrade from the free account, you will remove ads and support the great Kiwi team building this amazing service. Just use the discount code NEXTREEL or visit thenextreel.com slash letterboxd to get 20% off your pro or patron membership. And it works for renewals as well. All right, so I teased other adaptations, Andy. They keep making this thing over and over and over again. Oh, yeah, and still nobody has made the uh, version from the book by those Thai scholars who took kind of the story from Mongkut's perspective, which I am so much more curious about now. They've never even made it in Thailand. That'd be interesting. Yeah. Is there a Thai yeah. film? Right. Uh, yeah, I would love that. Uh, this was the first adaptation of this, and then followed by The King and I, the musical, the stage musical, and uh, which was, of course, then shortly thereafter, followed by the film musical. They did make a TV series of this in the early 70s, but I guess there had been a number of lawsuits by Leon Owen's family because of uh, just a lot of as they said, inaccurate and mutilated portrayals of her literary property. It was an unsuccessful lawsuit, but I don't think the show lasted more than, looks like, 13 episodes. Hmm. Then, 1999 comes along, and there were two versions of the film that year. Of course, uh, there was the Anne and the King um, Andy Tennant version with Jodie Foster and Chow Yun-Fat, but there was also The King and I animated musical, which I remember this coming out earlier in the year before the other one. It was an adaptation specifically of the musical. It had a fairly decent cast. Morgan Creek and Warner Brothers Animation put it out, and I think it was the thing that killed Warner Brothers Animation at the time, because it was such a complete flop. Nobody wanted to see it. Everybody thought it was a complete disaster, and um, yeah, it's funny when they crank something out like that that just nobody wants to see. I mean, it looks like the the poster Oh, yeah, it's... is as derivative as they get. Like, I, It looks like another... <laughs> another film yeah it looks like the um the ripoff animated films that would always come out like when another film was coming out like it just it's like it doesn't look like something that warner brothers would be putting out no for sure i wonder if they beheaded tup tim in that version <laughs> i wonder how that plays in animation yeah what happened to tup tim yeah let me see let me see if i can find tup tim the king threatens to whip her to death but he finds that he can't do it she and Chula Longcorn. Oh, she's in love with Chula Longcorn in that particular version. Oh. And they escape on elephants with Lewis. Oh, and look at this. Okay, here's another one. The very end, it's the end where the king doesn't doesn't die. He lets his son marry uh, Tuptim at the end of the story and become king and queen. Yeah. But the king is injured, uh, but he does heal. And then he's able to finally give her a house. Uh, dance with Anna. He's able to dance with Anna in her house outside of the palace. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Why have we no not wonder. covered that movie? Right. That's going to be in our Anna and the King mega series where we do all the films of Anna and Zion and King Mungtuk. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Okay. All right. Andy, how did it do at award season? 
That's why we're here, after all. That is why we're here. That's right. We never even mentioned, but this film is the kick, is kicking off our 1947 Academy Award uh, nominees for Best Writing Screenplay, which is adapted screenplay. They just weren't calling it at the time. It was nominated for five awards, including that, which it lost the best years of our lives. It was nominated. We talked about the music. It was nominated for Best Music, Scoring of a Dramatic or Comedy Picture, but also lost to the Best Years of Our Lives. Gail Sundergaard was nominated for her quiet performance as Lady Tiong, but lost to Anne Baxter in The Razor's Edge. And as we said, it won Best Cinematography, Black and White, and Best Art Direction, Interior Decoration, Black and White. At the New York Film Critics Circle Awards, Rex Harrison was nominated for Best Actor, but lost to Laurence Olivier in Henry V. National Board of Review, it was in their top 10 films of the year. At the Cannes Film Festival, it was nominated for the Grand Prize Feature Film, uh, but lost to, they, you know, tons of films. 11 films win that award at the time. And so, you know, it had its place in the award circles, but it didn't take any away other than those few. I mean, that doesn't necessarily surprise me too much. I mean, especially when you look at, at the movies it was up against, and Rex Harrison against Laurence Olivier. We just just talked about him. I found myself a little surprised, though, that it was nominated for Best Writing Screenplay, you know, kicking off this series. I think that there are some better picks of the year, which we'll talk about when we get to the end of this series. For sure. Have you finished all the movies that were released in 1946 for your preparation for this? (laughs) Slowly working on them. Slowly working on them. I I finally said, you know what? I need to whittle my list down to just films that were adapted so I can be more... Focused, and then I realized like ninety seven percent of the films on my list were adapt adaptations. I'm like, well, that didn't help much. <laughs> okay, I think I cut three films off. How did it do at the box office? Well, jumping ahead seven years from our last series, I was hoping to find a bit more information. Unfortunately, there just wasn't much for this film. I could find nothing regarding the budget for this. I did find that it opened June 20th, 1946, and it did go on to earn $3.5 million domestically, or $57.1 million in today's dollars. Without the budget, though, I just don't know how well it did. Alas. All right. That's it. That's the Dan and the King. And uh, now we... I don't know. I don't even know. I make. I do want to go listen to that soundtrack real hard. Would you put this on over the King and I? Like, I know King and I. You've kind of grown up with. Like, where do you stand between these two? Oh, absolutely not. No, no, because I don't. I don't think the story. I mean, I enjoyed the movie, but I just like I don't enjoy the specific story enough without the addition of the music. <laughs> The music adds like the the next thing, to, you know, the next layer of interest to me. And I, I feel like it's it is just because I grew up with it. It's like a complete thing for me. Right. Everything. Else, this felt like until they start singing, this movie isn't finished. And so the movie never quite ended. I uh, I can see that for sure. I as somebody who's never seen The King and I until, as I said, just a few months ago, I may prefer this over The King and I. It's just. Lee J. Cobb, some of the brown face, like some of that stuff is tough to get past. But otherwise, I really enjoyed the heart of this story. So, yeah. 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 Okay. Well, there it is. Well, we'll be right back for our ratings. But first, here is the trailer for next week's movie, William Wyler's The Best Years of Our Lives. These are the great personalities who bring a memorable experience to glowing life. Samuel Goldwyn's masterpiece. (laughs) 
The screenplay was written by Robert E. Sherwood, Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright of Petrified Forest and Idiot's Delight. From this, William Wyler, who won the Academy Award for his direction of Mrs. Miniver, wove a pattern of motion picture magic with Myrna Loy and Frederick March living through the heartwarming second bloom of love. Dana Andrews and Teresa Wright feeling the breathtaking thrill of love at first sight. Hoagie Carmichael spreading his own brand of stardust. All of them together giving all of us the best years of our lives. You know what I got the other day, Pete? Stephen King's latest. Want to borrow it? Do you know who you're talking to? What do you mean? Andy, when's the last time I read a paper book? It's been like decades. I would much rather use Kindle, or better yet, Audible. What am I thinking? I don't read paper books anymore either. I am an audiobook guy all the way. For those of you looking to listen to the books behind the films we talk about here on The Next Reel, get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. It's the way to go. Uh, Season 13 is a fun one, looking at various awards categories over the decades, from Best Picture nominees to cinematography. Adapted screenplays to visual effects. And a good number of movies we're discussing started out as books or plays that you can read now on Audible. 1940 Academy Awards Best Picture nominees of Mice and Men and Wuthering Heights. What a great way to start this season. In other series, we also covered The Killers, based on Hemingway's short story. A Place in the Sun, Strangers on a Train, A Streetcar Named Desire. Beckett, A Boy and His Dog, The Princess Bride, Congo. The Scarlet Letter, Jackie Brown, The Woman in Black. So many great movies from so many great sources, and they're all on Audible. Producing this podcast is a lot of fun, but takes a lot of time. We've dropped the dynamically inserted ads because they're so annoying and have no connection to our content. Plus, they just jam those things in wherever they see fit. We listened to you when you said you didn't like them. So now we're directly appealing to you, our dear listener. Please consider an Audible subscription to help support The Next Reel and our family of podcasts. I have been using Audible along with my family for decades now. I love it, and I have read hundreds of books through it. I couldn't be more pleased with their service, and I know you'll love it, too. Head to thenextreel.com slash audible and get your free trial. It really helps us out, and you have a world of over 200,000 audiobooks open to you. So much great material available. Dive in with a free 30-day trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. Start listening to amazing audiobooks of your favorite movie source material with your first free audiobook today. That's thenextreel.com slash audible. All right, Andy, Letterboxd, uh, we head over and look at all of our great stuff over at the uh, letterboxd.com slash the next reel. That's our Letterboxd HQ page. You can see all of the show reviews and ratings and everything like that. What are you going to do personally, Soda Creek Film? I feel like I enjoyed this enough to give it three stars and a heart. I think that's where I'm going to sit with it, which actually is where I also gave the, the musical version. <laughs> I, I think that this is just where that story sits for me. I don't I don't actually think I have the musical version rated, uh, but I do. I, I'm three stars in a heart for this one, too. That's it's, you know, middle of the road with a with a little plus. I, I enjoyed it. And um, but but for me, the musical is probably a four star. Oh, OK. A lot of good songs. Yeah, a lot of good songs. All right. Remember, don't forget to visit the next dot com slash letterbox to get your patron or pro membership works for renewals as well. So what did you think about Anna and the King of Siam? We would love to hear your thoughts. Hop into the Show Talk channel over in our Discord community, where we will be talking about the movie this week. When the movie ends, 
Our conversation begins. Letterboxd giveth, Andrew. As Letterboxd always doeth. Okay, I've got a two-star, you've got a four-star. You want to go up or down? Uh, mine gives us a little meat to talk about, uh, so maybe we start with mine if yours is okay. uh, less less serious. <laughs> Mine's meaty, too. We've got, I think I've oh, got some oh. meat, too. But you, I, okay. I, would, I, offer, I, I yield the floor to the gentleman from Arizona. This is an interesting one. I want to go look at their review on their website. Uh, it is a four-star by Flickers in Time, who says, I can't imagine the filmmakers realized just what an effective critique of colonialism they were making. Solid, entertaining telling of Anna Lee and Owen's fictionalization of her own life. Huh. Effective critique of colonialism. It was that. Did I miss that? Is that because it. <laughs> did I see that same movie? <laughs> well, I, I, I'm curious, like, is someone is it possible to walk away from this film reading it that way? And I guess I didn't read it that way, but. I am very curious now. I want to go look at their website yeah. now to to see what they had to say. But flickersintime.com, I guess they have a movie review. I'm going to have to go look at it. But um, I don't know. That's really interesting. And and I guess in the context of the stuff that she was doing, still got Top Tim killed, uh, like just in the context of the colonial infection didn't work. Is that what they were saying? In the wake of the devastation following World War II, Americans are questioning the whole idea of empire. The film reflects this in Anna's many speeches about individual freedom, rule of law, and national independence. At the same time, however, the story contains all the worst aspects of colonialism. Anna has picked up the white man's burden of civilizing the ignorant and showing them the light. She makes little to no effort understanding the Thai's ancient culture or beliefs. That's a really good question. That is actually, I mean, I think we were getting there. When we talked about how offended she's constantly kind of exuding uh, every time something else hits her that isn't English, like that's that makes a lot of sense. But her speeches, that's a we didn't mention that at all. And her speeches about the the importance of law and the importance of law to the king specifically so that he will so that law applies to everyone is is specifically anti-colonial. Right. Which marches around the, the world. Um, saying that our laws are the laws and the laws don't apply to us. They apply to those under our rule. Right, right. That's really, that's an actually a really interesting take. It is an interesting take. I might, um, I might need to read that full article and then, um, you know, think about the movie a little bit more. Maybe it'll, maybe it'll change some of my perspective of it, but, uh, post that, okay. post that in the show talk. I'd like to read that article yeah. too. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, mine comes from Claudio Alves. This is a two-star review and says the Margaret Landon novel was such a success in America that it was only a matter of time before Hollywood turned it into a movie. 20th century Fox producers, Daryl Zanuck supposedly marveled at the comedic possibilities of the story, the clash of cultures tempered by personal drama, tenderness and conflict. Knowing Zanuck's opinion of the novel certainly helps explain the strange tonalities of 1946's Anne and the King of Siam. While I appreciate the avoidance of romantic undertones, there is something unsettling about the jesting attitude that consumes a lot of this flick. I totally get that. I get that perspective because that's, that is, it, it has put a, a jesting comedic 
transparency layer on top of stuff that's pretty darn serious. Yeah, although, you know, and this might be something with uh, that we could say regarding John Cromwell, mm-hmm. I felt like it never actually went as far as it could have with some of that stuff. Like yeah. it, 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 it felt never like, lampooned any of yeah, it. Yeah, and, well, and it felt like they could have really been turning this into a much more of a uh, comedic take on all of this. And I, I guess I can't remember exactly what the King and I to compare, but I I felt like it's there, but I do feel feel like that Cromwell managed it in a way where it didn't ever feel too much to me personally. Yeah. Agreed. Okay, that's all I got. Okay, thanks everybody, and thank you, Letterboxed. <laughs>